turn to Psalm 115. Psalm 115. And if you're there, say word. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory. For thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Wherefore should the heathen say, where is now their God? But our God is in the heavens, and he hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them are like unto them, so is everyone that trusteth in them. O Israel, trust thou in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You that fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord hath been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless them that fear the Lord, both small and great. The Lord shall increase you more and more, you and your children. You are blessed of the Lord, which made heaven and earth. The heaven, even the heavens, are the Lord's. But the earth hath he given to the children of men. The dead praise not the Lord, neither any that go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. In the next 35 minutes or so, I hope that everyone in here, whether you're sitting here like you are this morning or maybe someone's watching us on Facebook or maybe someone will listen to this later, but if you're listening to this message, I hope that in the next 30 or 35 minutes, you will see a truth that many of you know and hold to, but I pray that you would see this truth more clearly than ever this morning. And the truth I pray you would know and see is this truth. God is sovereign. And the reason I want you to see this truth is because this is a life-changing truth. We're going to see in Psalm 115, as we've already heard it read multiple times in the service, you're going to see that God deserves to be trusted, He deserves to be praised and blessed and glorified, but the reason that God deserves to be trusted, praised, blessed, and glorified is that He is worthy of our trust, praise, blessing, and glory. And one reason he's worthy 
that we see in this text and throughout Scripture is that He is sovereign over all things. And as I teach this truth, I approach this very, um, not very carefully this morning, if that makes sense. In my previous ministry experiences, my previous churches, the things I'm going to say to you today would have gotten me kicked out that very Sunday. I would have been fired for saying these things at every, most every church I've ever served at. But today, I come knowing that our church has, for at least four years, been willing to listen to the Word and receive the Word, one way or another. And so I come very thankful to preach this sermon today. And I preach it not just because I get to, because uh, you're receiving church, and I don't preach it just because it's going to make us biblically smarter than anyone else or anything like that. I'm preaching this truth because, number one, it's in Scripture, and number two, this truth changed my life. When I came to believe this around age 27 or 28 and see things the way I see them now, which I, that was 15 years ago, wow, time flies. But when I came to see these truths, it changed the way I saw the entire world. It changed the way I saw the Bible. It changed the way I saw the church. It changed the way I saw my relationships. And it changed the way I saw my struggles, my heartaches, and my losses in life. And so when I've gone through the worst times of my life, I've said the same thing that Spurgeon said years ago, that the sovereignty of God is the pillow in which I lay my head at night that I might find peace. And so I want you to know that this truth that we're going to cover today this truth matters for your life. And the truth is, God is sovereign. Let me give you a couple of definitions related to this word sovereignty before we dive into the text and see it there. But a couple of definitions. One, it's this. The sovereignty of God is the biblical teaching that all things are under God's rule and control. And that nothing happens without his direction or permission. Later in the sermon, I'm going to give you several scriptures to go right with this definition. Let me give you another one. This one is from a man named A.W. Pink. He wrote a book years ago called The Sovereignty of God, in which he gives a very thorough definition. He says, what do we mean by the sovereignty of God? We mean the supremacy of God the kingship of God, the Godhood of God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that God is God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the most high, doing according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, so that none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and earth, so that none can defeat his counsels, thwart his purpose, or resist his will. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the governor among nations, setting up kingdoms, overthrowing empires, and determining the course of dynasties that pleases him best. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the only potentate, the king of kings, and lord of lords, such is the God of the Bible. Pretty thorough definition. 
So when I think about God being sovereign, the first thing that pops into my mind always is that God is king. And that's one way I think we can illustrate it for us. We know that in our country, for example, it was set up not to have one sovereign, correct? It was set up with these three different branches of government, if you will, right? The president, the courts, the, the legislature, and they're meant to be checks and balances, right, for each other. So there's not one man in our country who is sovereign over all things. But if we think about things we've read in the past or maybe some other countries, sometimes one man is in charge of a whole country. And whatever that man says goes. And that's kind of the, the king we're thinking about when we talk about our God. You see, a, a sovereign king can do whatever he wants because the kingdom is his. And this world and everything in it is our God's, according to Psalm 115. And so when I look at the word sovereign, I see the end of the word has the word reign in it, R-E-I-G-N. And I think God is sovereign, he reigns. I want to give you at least three ways in which we see the sovereignty of God. And there are more. I'm going to give you three. First, we see God's sovereignty in his attributes. In his attributes. And again, his attributes are innumerable. But I'm going to give you three of the attributes. The first one is that God is eternal. This is an attribute that belongs only to God. None of us are eternal. Nothing in all of creation is eternal but God. He always was, right? Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So when was God created? He wasn't, right? Genesis 1-1 assumes that God was always there because why? God was always there. That's one of those truths where if you think about it too long, it can kind of blow your mind, right? God is eternal. He's always been. And so I argue with you today that if God is eternal, always in existence, then of course he has the right to be sovereign over all things. Look in Psalm 115 and find verse 15. It says, You are blessed of the Lord, who did what? Who made the heaven and the earth. The eternal creator, eternal and sovereign. A second attribute of God, not only is he eternal, but he is infinite. This is a, I love this attribute of God. To say God is infinite means he's not confined by space or time. He is, as we like to say, he is omnipresent, always everywhere. He is Omniscient, knows everything about everything, all-knowing. He is omnipotent, which means all-powerful. His power has no limit. He's powerful enough to do anything he wants to do. He's not limited by time and space. Watch this. God is not limited by human action. Our God can do whatever he wants to do because he is infinitely infinite. Look at verse 3. I'm sorry, back up to verse 2. He says here, the nations say, where's, where's their God? Where's the God of Israel? I imagine this is a time where Israel may, may not be really flourishing, and the other nations look at Israel and say, where's their God? 
they're not doing very well. Their God must be falling on the job, falling down on the job. And so, where where is their God? And the and the psalmist says, Our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. A third attribute. Not only is God eternal and infinite, but he is immutable. To say God is immutable means that God is unchanging. You see how in all these ways God is so much different than us, all right? We change constantly, don't we? From the time we're born, we begin to change, right? Until the time we die, we change. People change. Things I did not eat as a kid, now I eat. Are y'all like that? Now I pretty much eat just about anything. <laughs> Back then I was picky. Things I used to like to do when I was a kid, I don't, I don't necessarily do anymore. And we change in different ways. Our appetites, our thoughts, our habits, our bodies, things change. Some of us change from minute to minute. We are ever-changing creatures surrounded by ever-changing creatures in an ever-changing world. But we have an God, a God who never changes. He is immutable. And a God who is powerful enough to, to always stay himself and stay the same certainly is a God who is sovereign over all things. You see, what I see in these three attributes is that God is higher than us. He is in the heavens. He does what he pleases. And so we just look to him and say, as we're going to see in the end, we worship you because you are this God. Number two, not only is he sovereign in his attributes, but he is sovereign in his creation. He's sovereign in his creation. Again, I mentioned to you verse 15. It says, may you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. So we, we understand this. We hold to this. I'm sure everyone in this room believes this, that God is creator and that everything else is creation. Every other God with a little g is a man-made creation, which is what's going on here. Look in the middle of this text. Look at verses 4 through 8. You see, the, the pagans, the, the other nations, the heathen, they have these idols made of silver and gold, statues or relics or what it, whatever it may be. And the psalmist, which I love how he does this, he kind of talks trash to, the, to them, doesn't he? Look at 4 through 8. Is that not some smack talk, some trash talk? He's like, they've made these idols, they've made these false gods. They have hands, but they don't touch anything. They have feet, but they don't walk. They have mouths, but they don't speak. It's like he's, he's just laying into them. He's mocking these idols and these idol worshipers. Does that remind you of another story in the Old Testament? As soon as I read this this week, another story popped in my mind. And that's the familiar story of Elijah on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. Remember that story? I'm going to tell it again if you don't remember it. Elijah is on this mountain. There's 450 prophets of Baal, and they're about to have this showdown to see whose God is real. Is Elijah's God, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, is he the true God, or is Baal the true God? And so they put this, I'm giving the very short version here, but they put this offering there on the mountain, and they say, whichever God rains down fire and lights it on fire, that's the true God. And so Baal, the Baal worshipers begin to go first, and they make all this noise. They cut themselves. They hoop and holler. They're calling for their God to send down fire. 
And guess what happens? Nothing happens, right? And they keep going on and on and on. And finally, Elijah says, he's like, well, guys, I don't think your God's going to show up. Where's your God? Is he traveling? Is he sleeping? Is he in the restroom? Where's your God at? And he mocks them in the same way to me that this psalmist does. Where's your God? And after all this time, their God doesn't show up. But we know what happens, right? Elijah steps up, prays, and what happens? The fire comes, God lights up the offering, and Elijah takes care of business and proves that his God is the true God. So back to Psalm 115. Whatever situation is going on here, again, we don't know for sure. But we see that this man of God writing Psalm 115 says, the, verse 8, these people that make these false idols, they are nothing, and everyone who trusts in them, in them are nothing. I'm paraphrasing again there. You see, what, what's happening here is these people are worshiping a creation of their own hands, which really means they're worshiping themselves, right? They've created this thing to worship, probably in their own image, right? These things they created had mouths, hands, feet, eyes, ears, probably created something in their own image or similar to it, and now they're worshiping it, so they're really worshiping themselves. And I think this is a decision that actually every person is faced with one way or another. Even today, you and I are faced with this same question, am I going to worship the Creator or am I going to worship the creation? And namely, in our day and time, it's this. Am I going to worship the creator, or am I going to worship myself? We must not place our hope in the created. We must place our hope, our faith, our trust in the creator. Look at verses 9 through 12. Three times in 9, 10, and 11, what does he say? Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. He is sovereign in his character. He is sovereign in his creation. And he is sovereign in his actions. Let's talk about verse 3, which is to me the, the verse I'm really speaking mostly on this morning. Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. Let that verse sink in. Our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. This means that when I've gone through the worst times in my life, instead of falling apart, or blaming God, or running from God, once I came to hold this truth, when the worst things have happened to me, instead of blaming or running or even doubting, I could say, he is sovereign. He does all that he pleases. And because he reigns in the heavens, his actions, the way he works in this world and in our lives is sovereign. If you are the person who says, God can't do that, or God wouldn't do that, 
Or God isn't fair because he let this thing happen. Or if you believe your so-called free will is stronger than God Almighty's will, then you should repent for having a low view of God. And maybe even ask the question, how well do I know the God of the Bible? Because the God we worship, the God we serve, the God of the Bible is sovereign in everything he does. Let me give you the scripture to back up what I'm saying. Isaiah 64, verse 8. Talking about God as the potter and us as the clay, it says, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, you are our potter, and we are all the work of your hand. So, what does the potter do to the clay? It molds it, and does the clay have any choice in that molding? The clay just sits there, right? And the potter molds. So, wouldn't it be funny if the, if the clay looked up at the potter and was like, what are you doing? What are you doing to me, potter? That's not how you need to mold. You need to mold me differently, potter. What are you doing? Would clay ever do that? Can't do that, can it? Look at the next verse from Romans chapter 9. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Do you see it? He is the potter. We are the clay. Let me show you another scripture talking about the purpose of the Lord's standing. Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Job spoke on this as well in at least two different places. In Job 23, he says, But God is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? What God desires, that he does. How about Job 42, verse 2? I know that you, God, can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So church, nothing that God has purposed Nothing that he's purposed and nothing that he's planned can ever be thwarted or stopped. Every single thing that God has planned will come to pass. Are y'all still with me? Everything that God has planned will come to pass. Listen to Isaiah 46.10. Speaking, the Lord speaking, declaring the end of from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I might accomplish all my purpose. Nope, I said it wrong, didn't I? I will accomplish all my purpose. So, I want to give you two very specific ways that God does all that he pleases. From 115 verse 3. The first one is the sovereignty of God is seen in the death of Christ. I've asked this many times before, but who was ultimately in charge when the Son of God died? Was it the high priest? Was it Pontius Pilate? Was it the Jewish crowds who chanted crucify him? Was it the Roman soldiers who took part? 
Who was ultimately in charge? Was it my sin? Was that ultimately in charge of him going to the cross? Was it Satan or some other demonic powers? No, 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 no. According to Acts 4, there was one in control. For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined, predetermined to take place. It was God's plan, and when I say God, I mean the Trinity, but it was God's plan to kill Christ. It was the plan of God to send His Son. It was the the plan of the Son to lay down His life willingly for sinners like us. And so here's my question for you, church. If God planned to send His Son to die, and then He worked all of that out perfectly, that we might be saved, how can we doubt that He is sovereign over everything else? If God didn't leave that to chance, the very gospel that our faith hinges on, if He didn't leave that thing to chance, then why would we doubt that He leaves anything else to chance? And the next way we see the sovereignty of God is closely related to the death of Christ. And we see this. The sovereignty of God is seen in the salvation of His elect. The sovereignty of God is seen in how that the death of Christ is applied to us in our salvation. Let me define this for you. God's sovereignty and salvation means that He saves whom He will. And those whom He saves owe nothing to anything in themselves. They are saved because God graciously chose them in eternity and regenerated and called them in history. They, we, cannot take credit for our faith, but it is the gift that he himself sovereignly bestows. And so here's the truth that a lot of people don't want to hear because it offends their will or their power or their strength. It just offends them in general. The truth is this. If God has chosen you and called you to be saved, you will be saved. Again, this is confusing to some people. This is something that causes anger in some people. Um, this is a truth that costs, could cost some pastors their jobs. I have certainly lost jobs and prospective jobs because of this truth. But I've told you all this before, right? I will no longer care anymore. I'm going to preach what I think is the truth regardless. And I appreciate you all for allowing me to do that. And so, if y'all fired me today, I was telling Jason this the other day, I don't know where I might could go. Because I'm only going where I can preach the truth. So, I hope I stay here. <laughs> this is the truth that, again, causes confusion with many, causes anger in some, and costs people. But nonetheless, church, this is truth. That our God is sovereign, sovereign over all things, including salvation. Let me ask some questions. Do we really think we have the power to save ourselves? Do we have the power to forgive our own sin? Do we, have, do we think we have the power to offset God's 
eternal purposes? Do we think we can run and hide from a sovereign king? Can we ignore God when he spiritually takes out our dead heart and puts in us a new heart? Can we stop that heart transplant spiritually? Can we refuse him when he effectively, effectually, and powerfully draws us by his spirit? We say it time and time again, we are spiritually dead. And we would never, we would never, you would never have ever chosen to be saved unless God made you alive in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2. I would have never said, you know what, I'm going to turn to Christ if he didn't give me that new heart and make me alive. Your so-called free will will always choose sin until God gives you a new spiritual heart. Like Lazarus in the tomb, we are dead. But like Lazarus in the tomb, when Jesus calls, we are made alive. So who will come to Christ? We studied this last year. John 6, 37. Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So I ask the question, who will come to Christ? All that the Father gives to Christ. Acts 13, 48. It says, and as many were appointed to eternal life, believed. So in Acts 13, 48, who believed in Christ? Those who were what? Appointed to eternal life. So who will come to Christ? All that the Father gives Christ. Who will come to Christ? All that have been appointed when were they appointed? When did the Father give them to Christ? Was it at the cross? Was it when they, when they put their faith in Him? I would argue no and no. I would argue primarily they were given to Christ before the foundation of the world. Let me show you these texts. Ephesians 1. A text a lot of churches skip over. Even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. In him we have, been, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Revelation 13.8 all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. It should blow our minds and ignite our hearts to love and worship God, to know how sinful we would be, and yet He would set His sights on us from all eternity. Not because of anything in us, any future faith we might have, but simply by his gracious mercy and kindness, he would set his love toward us. And he not only saves us, or sees us from eternity, but he saves us to the utmost. From beginning to end, Romans 8, 29 and 30, often called the golden chain of salvation. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he also 
he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I share this with you, church, because I want you to know, before you leave here today, if you don't already know it, that God is completely sovereign. And if you are a Christian, God deserves 100% of the glory for your salvation. God does not get 99.999%, and my faith or my walking the aisle or my praying a prayer is that 0.1% that tipped the scales, right? Which is what most people believe, by the way. God's, yeah, God's gracious, He's kind, He's loving, but my faith, that really, that, that made it happen. And what I'm telling you today is, yes, that faith made it happen, but you only have that faith because God gave it to you. It was his idea. And anything else, when we see salvation any way else, we are going to, at some level in our hearts, have a sense of self or pride. Or an assurance based on something besides grace. God put forward a plan to save his people. That plan centered around his son, And God has sovereignly worked out and is working out that plan. So let me say this one more time. You cannot save yourself. You will never be good enough. Your faith will never be good enough unless it was granted to you by the King of Kings. And it frustrates me when people treat our God like a poor beggar like, a, like he is a poor beggar sitting there, please people, come follow me. Our God is not a poor beggar hoping some poor lost soul will come to him and, because he needs pity or something like that. Our God is a conquering king who overcomes darkened, sinful hearts and takes us from the kingdom of darkness and transfers us to the kingdom of light. So we need to see him as such. We are poor beggars. We are broken. We are enslaved, depraved, helpless, hopeless, and lost. But it pleases him. Verse 3, he does whatsoever he pleases. It pleases him to provide for the beggar, mend the broken, redeem the captive, purify the depraved, help the helpless, bring hope to the hopeless, and to save that which was Lost. It pleases him to do those things. And the scripture says it pleased the father to crush his son. And it pleases him to call us to himself. Aren't you glad that our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases? So what do we do now? Application. Number one, he is sovereign over all things. We must trust him. The psalmist told us in verses 9 through 11, trust him and he will bless you. Trust him and you will be blessed. And so I remind you that that God's sovereignty and control and rule over your life does not negate your responsibility, does it? Nor mine. I'm responsible to repent, put my faith in him. I'm responsible to follow him, to read his word, to pray. I'm responsible to do everything this word commands me to do, right? It's my responsibility, and yet God is still sovereignly over all of it. 
What's he call us to do primarily? Number one, our application, trust him. Believe in him for salvation. If you don't know Christ, if you don't know the one we've been talking about today, believe in him for salvation. Believe in Christ, death, burial, resurrection. The person of Christ, the work of Christ for sinners. Trust him for daily needs. See the sovereignty in God providing for you every single day. Number three, rely on him through your struggles. Don't go through struggles doubting God or questioning him. Go through those struggles relying on him. Number four, hope in him no matter what comes your way. In this way, we can say with with Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but what? Father, your will be done. I'm going to trust you for it. A second application, God is sovereign, so we trust him. Number two, he is sovereign, so we seek to glorify him continually. Verse one, not to us, O Lord, not to us. See the emphasis there? He says it twice. But to your name, give glory. I'm sure you see it, right? We don't deserve credit. We don't deserve glory. We're not worthy. We're not eternal. We're not infinite. We're not immutable. We're not in control. We're not all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present. We're flawed. We're the clay. We're separated from God by sin. So not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. In everything we do in this church building, with each other, in our lives, in everything we do, we should seek to glorify Him continually. He deserves all the glory. I deserve none of the glory. We boast in Him, right? And if you sense, and we all do this at times, if you sense that you are desirous of glory, you quickly need to come back to Psalm 115.1. And this psalmist knew. He knew. He didn't deserve the glory. Israel didn't deserve the glory. The priest didn't deserve the glory. But the Lord deserved the glory. Finally, praise Him eternally. In verses 16 through 18, he says, The heaven... Even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth has, he has given to the children of men. The dead praise not the Lord, neither any that go down into silence. Hey, look, as of right now, we're all still alive. So verse 18 is for us. We will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. I hope that you will consider the truth of God's sovereignty. And if you already believe the things I've been saying today, that you would just say yes and amen. And if you're maybe confused about any of the things I've said today, you will find me later, find Jason later, other people in our church, and maybe discuss what the Bible says about some of these things. Um, I would not stand and preach these things if I was not completely convinced this is truth. And I'll say it again, these truths 
changed my life and the way I view things. And I hope these truths will help us trust him more, glorify him continually, and praise him eternally. Let's pray.